Let's make our way back to our seats. As you're uh, grabbing your seat, I want to give a special welcome to a group of folks that come all the way from Nebraska. Our friend Bruce and Debbie Olson brought their friends from back to Nebraska. Yeah. The land of corn huskers and steaks. I've been, to, I've been to both Lincoln and Omaha, which is like 90% of the state, right, uh, population-wise. And so um, it's, it's cool to have you guys with us. Thanks for coming. Let me get this mic situated. Um, I'm sure getting here are many different turns and potholes and traffic. And I'm sure many of us have had similar experiences even getting here, even if it was from a shorter distance. However, uh, the truth of the matter is it's like that in life, isn't it? Getting here to this room today probably took a lot of twists and turns and potholes in all of life. And uh, that's just the truth of the matter, how things are. God has a plan for each of us, and his plans and his path sometimes look different from one person to the next. We've all got different things that we bring to the table. Um, But I need you to know, as we emphasize most Sundays, is that you're at the right address this morning. You're at the right place this morning. The reason being, the Bible teaches that God is omnipresent, which means he's everywhere present at all times. And so no matter where you're at, God is there. But the Bible also teaches there's something special when we gather with his people. And he shows his presence in a manifest kind of way that is unique to his presence in all creation. It's God's manifest presence. It's why when we sing songs, there's times in your heart you're like, Something's happening here. God's doing something to me here. It's because God is is, is revealing his presence in a way unique to you. It's those times when someone says, man, somebody prayed with me, and that prayer impacted me significantly in a Sunday morning because God is showing up in this place. Hardly a Sunday goes by where someone won't say something like that or, or say, you know, when you said this from the pulpit, it's like you were talking to me, and I usually reply like, well, it's not me. It's the Holy Spirit who knows you. And a lot of times people will say that. I'm like, I, I didn't say that. You know, they'll, they'll say, when, Pastor, when you said this and that, I'm like, I, I didn't say that today. You know? But, but that's the way. Like, God is showing them what he wants them to hear. And so I'm just grateful that you're at the right address today. I'm glad to be here with you all. Would you turn your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3? If you haven't got a Bible with you, if you don't own a printed Bible, there is one in a chair in front of you. We're going to be meeting up in page 981. 981, Philippians chapter 3. If you don't own a Bible, please consider the one in that chair in front of you a gift from the brook to you. Uh, We'd love for you to go home with it as God's word in your hands. Uh, If you're able, would you please rise to your feet as I read from Philippians chapter 3, verses 1 through 11. The Bible teaches that God's word is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, which means when we come to God's word, we're we're, we're coming before something that's active, that God is using. And so when we read the Bible publicly, it's not a small endeavor. It's not equivalent to reading Shakespeare. It's not equivalent to reading a, a best novel. But we're reading God's word speaking to you and me. That's pretty awesome, isn't it? Is it awesome, fam? Yeah. Here we go. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. Can you say rejoice in the Lord? Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those 
who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Verse 5, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. And then a bomb drops in verse 7, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything. Can you say everything? Everything Everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith. In Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word. You may be seated, family. Full disclosure, this is the third time I've preached from this passage in four years. And I promise nobody else here remembers that probably. You know, b- back in the day when I first started preaching, I get stressed out by stuff like that. Like, you know, what? I'm preaching this passage. Oh, I preached it a year ago. Everyone's going to remember that. And I realized, you know, I, I don't remember what I preached last Sunday sometimes, <laughs> let alone what I preached for you guys a year ago. Uh, at the same time, it, it doesn't stress me out because I know God is active. God's at work. And the way we hear a passage or a sermon one year is different than we hear it the next. Because our circumstances change. Our, our, our growth happens. Maybe we're struggling in a different way. So God's at work, and he's going to do it through his word. I was thinking, why is it that I've preached this passage twice and now a third time? And I shouldn't be surprised because really in this text comes much of my heartbeat as a Christian and one of my passions as a pastor. My greatest desire, I would consider it among the many main goals as a pastor is that you would understand that there is nothing of greater value in your life than knowing Jesus. I I want us to know that there is no better gift you could ever receive than the gift of Jesus and salvation that comes from him. There's no greater choice you could ever make than to surrender your life entirely to him. There, There is no greater treasure you can find than Jesus. He is excellent, he is preeminent, and he is supremely better than anything. And this passage tells us that. And if you could come to believe that, not just in your head, but through your experience too, I would be overjoyed. And so to me, it's not painful to preach this passage again. The first time I preached it was in a series we titled 100. And it was leading up to our 100th Sunday as a church. That was back in 2015. And in that series, we looked at different people 
who gave 100, who gave it all, who gave 100% of who they were to serving Jesus. And among them is the Apostle Paul, as this passage tells us. He put it all on the line. He considered everything in his life and still says it doesn't quite add up to knowing Jesus. And I want you and I to come away today with that very thing. I want you to hear this thing that I told you then, I'm going to tell you again today, that giving all and receiving Jesus is far better than keeping all and rejecting Jesus. Giving all and gaining Jesus is better than having all except for Jesus. Having Jesus plus nothing else is better than having everything else without him. That's what we're telling you today. That's what I want you to hear, and that's what Paul is saying in Philippians chapter 3. A lot of times our value systems are way upside down, and what it does is produces misery because you're never satisfied. We never have enough because we're chasing the wrong things. And here Jesus is saying, I am all your soul longs for. I don't know your circumstance today. I don't know what you've been chasing after. I don't know what voids there are in your souls, but you must understand that the greatest pursuit and the greatest fulfillment is Jesus. And so that's what we come to see here in Philippians chapter 3. There's some context, there's some verses I want to unpack leading us to that big idea, that thrust that I'm going to be working out towards the end of the sermon. He starts out, though, saying, finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for your soul. He says, rejoice in the Lord. Paul might say, saying, your life may be hard. You might be on your last dollar today. You're back up against the wall. Relationally, things might be difficult, but there's reason to rejoice because it's in the Lord. So Paul says, finally rejoice in the Lord. That first word, though, finally is intriguing because when you hear the word finally, you think he's about to wrap up his letter. And in fact, he oftentimes does that. Towards the end of his letter, he says, finally, I'm going to give my last thing. But if you look here, there's another two chapters left in this book. You're like, what's going on here? It's, it's kind of like he, he chases this, this bunny trail. It's a tangent thought, but not completely out of, out of the ordinary. He had just talked to us about these exemplary people, Timothy and Epaphroditus, and he's getting ready to maybe seal up his letter. He's like, no, let me, let me give you a little bit more here, though. Let me give you some warnings. Let me, let me continue to press the big idea of this book to you. And he says, it's to rejoice in the Lord. We can rejoice in a lot of things in life. You can rejoice in your team winning the championship. You can rejoice in LeBron losing the championship. All right? You can rejoice at a great deal on that dress you've been wanting. You can rejoice in finding a reliable mechanic. These are all reasons to rejoice. But what are you rejoicing in in those moments? Is it in the gift itself? Paul says rejoice in the Lord, not just in the gifts, but in the one who gives the gifts. It's a telling us to look at our lives and understand what James 1.17 tells us, that every good and perfect gift comes from above. So when we rejoice in the Lord, we're not just rejoicing in the gifts, but we're rejoicing in the giver of the gift. That is a posture of our soul, that is a perspective of our eyes that allows us to see the world altogether differently. 
Let the enjoyment of what's good lead you then to rejoice in the giver of what's good. And Paul is telling us, rejoice in the Lord. He's like, he goes on to say, to write the same thing to you is no trouble to me. He's like, I didn't hesitate. I didn't hesitate when I wrote this. Even though I've said this five times already up to this point to tell you to rejoice. Though I've already said four times to have joy. And though altogether in this letter 12 times, I'll tell you to rejoice, be joyful, be glad. But it's like, I'm not hesitating. I find no problem being repetitive. It makes for some really bad grammar, some bad writing style. It makes for some bad literature. You're like, hey, diversify your language here or be more creative. And Paul's like, I'm not trying to be a good literary writer right now. I know that repetition is the mother of learning, and I want you to learn this. Rejoice, no matter your circumstance. You might remember, we've said it every week, Paul's sitting in prison writing this. He's writing to people who are being persecuted for their faith, people whose faith is being put to the test. They're up against the wall. Paul's up against the wall, and both of them are there, and Paul's like, rejoice. There's reason to rejoice. And I'm not hesitating to tell you this. Be joyful. Be joyful. Rejoice in the Lord. And to say the same thing to you is no trouble to me, he says. And it is safe for you, which means it is dangerous then to not rejoice. You hear that? A heart of gratitude comes from an idea that we rejoice knowing God is the giver of everything. We're not standing before God entitled. We're standing before God as beggars. And so every good gift we realize is a gift from God. And it's safe for us to take that posture of our soul. God is generous in his grace, and he offers it freely to us. This is at the foundation of the Christian worldview. See, at the center of Christianity is that Jesus is at the center. That's why we sing that song, Jesus at the center of it all. The the Christian worldview says everything revolves around Christ. My life, my ambitions, my dreams, it's all around him and for him. That's what it's about. This is the Christian worldview. The Christian worldview says that we come with nothing to the table and God comes with everything and he gives it freely to those who receive it. And this is what God wants us to understand And so Paul says rejoice, and it's safe for your soul to do that. But then he gives a warning in verse 2. Because the few things can steal your joy like wrong belief. Hear me. Not, not, Not just your circumstances, but wrong belief can steal your joy. Paul says, look out for the dogs. And I've told you guys before when I preached this passage, when your child asks for a dog, you point to this passage. It says, the Bible forbids me having a pet dog, all right? We can't do it. Look out for the dogs. My, Bobby, can we have a dog? I got to obey, all right? I don't care how little it is and cuddly. We're not getting the dog, all right? He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He uses these three descriptions. Dogs were seen as unclean. They just wandered about. And Paul said, look out for those who are just wandering about, who are unclean, not just like cleanliness and hands, but of soul, who are teaching you something different. He says, look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers, which is those who do evil. And their doing of evil is a response to their belief. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. He won't even say what they believe. He just kind of condescendingly says they're mutilators of the flesh. 
And you're like, what, what's he saying here? Who are these people? Well, back in the book of Genesis, God gave a call to the Jewish people. First through their father, Abraham. And he said, God told Abraham, all your descendants after you, all your male descendants should be circumcised on the eighth day. And you're like, man, this just got real serious. All right? We're talking circumcision. Yes. All right? Because what it does is it signifies for Jewish people that they are those who are following the God of Israel. And all of God's people from Abraham on, all of his sons were to be circumcised on the eighth day as a symbol, as a sign of their devotion to God. Now, throughout the Old Testament, God's like, look, it's an outward expression of an inward circumcision. What it means is God wants to cut your heart and do heart surgery as, and, and for you to show your belief and allegiance to God you have an outward circumcision as a sign. But as we all do, as is human nature, we get caught up with externals and doing and lose the heart. And so for them, for these people, these, these Jewish people who became followers of Jesus, they began to still hold on to their past rituals and said, in order to be a Christian, yes, you must believe in Jesus, but you must also be circumcised. It is both equal salvation. Jesus plus circumcision. And the Apostle Paul is aggravated and annoyed by this. He calls them mutilators of the flesh. He's not playing around here. What upsets him is not circumcision. In fact, he'll tell us a few verses later. He's like, been there, done that. The problem is, is you are making this a ground for salvation when that's not a ground at all. It's Jesus plus blank equals salvation. And that is not Christian mathematics. Paul says Christian mathematics is Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. And so he calls these people mutilators of the flesh. Family, stay away from any kind of teaching that tells you believing in Jesus plus anything is what's required of you to knowing him. Some might say Jesus plus coming to a church service. The Bible doesn't teach that. Some might say Jesus plus speaking in tongues. Jesus plus baptism. Jesus plus tithing. Look, these things are all good things. But Jesus plus nothing is what equals salvation. And when Jesus changes our lives, then he begins to work. He gives us spiritual gifts. He gives us obedience. So these things happen at different times for different believers. But that's not how you're saved. You're saved by the shed blood of Jesus. And Paul here is just annoyed. He won't even say their names. He calls them dogs, evildoers, and mutilators of the flesh. And then he says in verse 3, look, man, he says, We are the real circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Paul's like, look, what I've been teaching you guys is straight up. It's the real truth. It's not about the externals. It's about the heart. Where the real circumcision happens is in the heart. When God opens your heart up, reveals your sin to you, and you realize you need Jesus, and you put your faith in him, and God brings forgiveness, that's what it's about. And then we worship by the Spirit, and we boast, we glory, we brag about Jesus, and say it's all about him. Paul's like, that's what it's all about. But I love how he goes on here. He's like, you know, because sometimes people are like, oh, Paul, but you don't, you don't get it. You haven't been where we're at. You know, it's like the people who say, you know, 
um, tell you, you know, it's not all about riches, right? And you're like, yeah, it's true, but I wouldn't mind trying and testing that hypothesis, right? You know? Um, Paul's like, you know, so you know, he's like, I've tested the hypothesis. I have done all the things that you say are needed. He goes on to say, look at there in verse, in verse 5, he's like, I've been circumcised on the eighth day. My family did right to me. I'm of the people of Israel. My, my ethnicity was right. I'm of the tribe of Benjamin, which happened to be Israel's first king. And many people by this point didn't know what tribe they were a part of. Paul's like, we can, we can trace my family bloodline all the way to the tribe of Benjamin. He says, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. You know how it is in Humboldt Park later this month? You go there, you're going to see people wearing Puerto Rican flag capes, right? Puerto Rican flag coffee mugs, you know? They're going to have Puerto Rican flags draped on their cars. And Paul's like, I, I was that person. I was the Hebrew of Hebrews. I had the, the flag of David on my shoulders, you know? He's like, I, I, I was proud of my heritage. I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. As to the law... The law of Moses, I was a Pharisee, which means he was a religious leader. He was one who had begun to to thrive in his religiosity. As to zeal, in terms of passion, people didn't question his passion. He persecuted the Christians. He hated Jesus. And the Pharisees loved him for it because they hated Jesus. He's like, nobody questioned me in terms of my zeal. And as to righteousness under the law, did I keep the law? He's like, are you kidding me? I was blameless. You look at those Ten Commandments, I kept those to a T, he's saying, in terms of the Jewish law. What Paul's doing, he's laying out his resume, and he's saying to those people who are teaching the Philippian church that this is how you get saved, he's like, look, I did that all. I did it all. But then he goes on to say, you must understand this one thing in verse 7. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. He says, it just doesn't compare to Jesus. It just doesn't add up. My accolades and achievements are nothing when I found Jesus, or better yet, when Jesus found me. Verse 8, he continues on. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Again, giving all And receiving Jesus is better than keeping all and losing Jesus. Paul's like, Jesus is better than all this. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. That's trash. He said, it's garbage in order that I may gain Christ. Now, Paul's not dissing some of his his heritage He's not saying, I hate being a Jewish person. He's just saying that that's not what it's all about. In comparison, I I don't see it having the same value as I see knowing Jesus. He said, I've counted the loss of all things. In order for us to really grab the the, the enormity of what he's he's saying, we've got to understand how much he really lost. Because a lot of us are sitting here, we're thinking, man, Jesus, I want to follow you, but I don't know if I'm ready to give up certain things in my life. Certain passions, certain addictions, certain pet sins that we love to live with, and we, we, in some ways, they're killing us, but we can't live without it. Maybe it's good things in our lives, but they become God things, and it's idolatrous. 
And what Paul is saying here is like, no, look, I, I gave up everything. He lost his identity, let me tell you that. While, yes, he was Jewish by ethnicity, he no longer saw it having the same value he once did. He lost his reputation. He says, people knew me to be aggressive with the faith that I believed in, the Jewish faith. I persecuted Christians. I had a reputation. And people knew me as that guy, that young buck who was passionate about uh, pharisaical living. But he lost that reputation. They began to hate him. We don't know much about his family and friends because in every indication, we have the idea that he lost them when he began to follow Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter 26, 24, someone says, Paul, all of your learning has made you crazy. That's the insult they told him. You've you've lost your mind. He's lost his identity, his reputation. He even lost respect. That man who was once revered is now ridiculed. The guy who was lauded and applauded is now castigated, and he's insulted. In fact, at one point, they call him an, an idle babbler as he's talking about his faith. He lost his identity. He lost his reputation. He lost his respect. They probably called him a sellout, but he lost his comfort. This is significant because raised in a Jewish household, he had, some, he had some expectations upon him. It seems like his family background had a particular lane that was, advanta- that was advantageous in life. And he stood in that lane. He ran that lane to the best of his ability. And as he stood in that lane, he progressed from all societal standards. But when Jesus blindsided him, while he was on that lane, he realized he was running in the wrong lane. And he had to step out of it. And in the track and field world, you step out of your lane, that disqualifies you. That, 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 that gives you some ridicule, saying, what was that person thinking? How did they step outside of their lane? And what Paul is saying is, I had a lane to run in. I ran that lane perfectly. But I was on the wrong course. See, when we think about our lives and the things that we put our value systems in, what lane are you running in today? What, what, what is it that you're chasing after What brings you the hopeful satisfaction in life? Because what God wants to do is encounter you as he encountered Paul. And he revealed to Paul what lane he was in. And for some of us today, I fear you might realize you've been chasing the wrong things. You've been trying to get street cred, office cred at the job place, academic cred, And what's happening is you're pursuing the wrong things. And hear me now, hear me now. I'm not saying these things are wrong to to enjoy academics, to to be a business owner. You do those things, but don't do them in the wrong lane. The wrong lane is when it's about you. The wrong lane when it's only about wealth and not about the glory of God and investing in his kingdom and changing people's lives. Paul's like, man, He was in the wrong place, the wrong time. He had to step out. He lost his identity, his reputation, respect, and comfort. And some of us might be thinking, man, this is not a good uh, presentation you're giving me. And you want me to become a Christian? You want me to lose my identity, my reputation, perhaps respect? 
Comfort? You must understand this, fam. This is not a bad trade-off. You hear me? You may lose, but you will gain exponentially more. The great writer C.S. Lewis once likened many of us to a child who's playing in the mud, making mud pies. And you've seen kids make mud pies. They love it. The more mud, the better. The dirtier, the better. And those kids would be hard-pressed to pull away from the mud. You could even tell the kid, hey, we're about to go on a cruise in the Caribbean Sea. All-inclusive. We're going to see the most beautiful sights. And that kid looks at you, looks at the mud, looks at you, looks at the mud, and says, this mud is so much fun. And C.S. Lewis says, we are like children playing in mud pies. We are being offered a, a, a great voyage at sea. And we turn it down because we are far too easily pleased. See, the things we chase after, we think they are pleasing. When the God of this universe, who is infinitely pleasing, is offering himself to us. And so often we say, I'm content with the mud pie. And Paul says, look, these things I live for, they were all the world counted as gain. But I now, when I met Jesus, I see them as rubbish. Rubbish. Family, my, my heart, I just, I just, I, I want us to hear this and feel it in our soul. So you're not just hearing words I'm speaking, but you come to know this personally. Our world is dying and is broken. We see it all around us. I mean, if you're like me, we're just broken at the news we're hearing. Celebrities who've had apparently everything taken their own lives. And it's heart-wrenching. People we admire in life for good reasons. They're creatives. Fashion designers, Kate Spade and Anthony Bourdain, a great chef, world-class. People we admire. And we know there's a lot more to their stories, but understand, family, that we can have it all without Jesus and ultimately have nothing. Have nothing. That's true in Hollywood and it's true in the neighborhood, family. That's true at Millennium Park and it's true at Bell Park. It's true on Michigan Avenue, the Mag Mile, and Oak Park Avenue. Wall Street and the side street. It's true everywhere. Now, I do feel compelled to just take a a tangent here to speak about um, th these two celebrities having taken their lives because there was a deeper issue in their hearts that they were struggling with. It was a mental illness. Um, and I, I don't want to say any of this lightly, family, um, because what, one thing that burdens me is I was reading the different reports, even especially of, of Kate Spade, that she knew she was struggling with bipolarism and depression and anxiety. A lot of it came from her fame in her 30s, but she felt like she couldn't seek help because there was a stigma attached to the mental illness. That's tragic. We, we got to remove those stigmas. If you're here battling depression, anxiety, bipolarism, schizophrenia, and other kinds of mental illnesses, you must understand that you have a beautiful identity in God's sight. You, you got to understand that, that we, we live in a broken world. 
And these things may not be the result of anything you've done other than the fact that we live in a world that's broken. And for you, it might be more affecting your mind. And for others of us, it affects our hearts or our feet or our eyes or our souls. So I want you, I want you to hear this. If you're battling with mental illness, don't believe the lie that says you're not loved by God. A God who is eternal and good loves you. And while we can't make sense of our battles on earth, I'm not trying to explain it and and say this is why it's all happening. I don't understand it all. But what I do know that's unshakable is the character of God. He's good and he is love. Next thing I want to tell you is it's not just your imagination. Sometimes we, we put that idea on those who battle mental illness, like just think happy thoughts and you'll be all better. It's not that simple. You, you think they didn't try that already? It's a mockery to say something like that. It's insulting. And you need to know that it's, it's not just in your imagination. But you must also hear it's okay to seek help. There's no stigma to that. Some of the people in my life I admire the most are those who said, I need help. It takes more courage, perhaps, to do so. But we want to applaud courage. We want to surround you in that. And everything might feel unstable for you. I tell you, man, never take your own life. Ever, 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 ever take your own life. Your life has value and worth. You ask me how much worth? Paul says right here, God sent his son Jesus to redeem you from your sins so that you can be found in Christ. So when things feel shaky and life feels like it's not worth living, know that you have a purpose, you have a meaning, you have significance. You might not have much else, but if you got Jesus, you've got all that you need. You've got all that you need. The question then is, why is Jesus far better? Whether I'm battling mental illness, whether I'm battling my sin, whether I'm battling my past, I'm battling, I'm just struggling. Why is Jesus better than pursuing these other things, Paul? Because Paul's just saying here, I consider them all rubbish, but why are they rubbish? Well, why, why are these things, why aren't they satisfying and why can Jesus satisfy? And he says it here in the most remarkable ways in verse 9. He says, I want to be found, I'm found in him, not here. This is, this is the most important message you will ever hear in your life. And I just said that and I believe it. He says, I may be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes through, faith, through the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. This is what Paul is saying here. And this is why Jesus is better than anything. He says, everything I pursue it in my life, while in the moment it might bring some joy, some satisfaction, I enjoyed the reputation, I liked being the big thing, but what things, these things could not do is deal with my heart. They could not produce righteousness before God. This is the greatest message you'll ever hear because of this. We are all born people who are separated from God, men and women, young and old, sinful in our core being. And we are not right. There is no rightness. There is no righteousness 
before God. When perfection is lost, it cannot be retained. And God is perfect. And we're not. You know, the Bible shows us that the just penalty of our sin, the ways we've rebelled against God through our speech, every lie we've said, every lustful thought, every evil intention, every act of pride, the result is it separates us from God. And that separation is eternal. We're talking God in heaven and you and me in hell. Unless we could be righteous. And what Paul is saying, when you look at the law, I was blameless, but I wasn't righteous before God. I wasn't perfect. I couldn't get my way to heaven being the best that I could be. I wore the flag on my back like a cape. I had the right upbringing, the right education, the right obedience. I did everything I could, but that took me to hell. Family, there's nothing you can do to ever get yourself to heaven on your own. This is why it's the most important message you'll ever hear, because Paul says this righteousness couldn't come from the law, but in Jesus, I got a righteousness that comes through faith. So when Jesus went to the cross, my sin went on his back. And in exchange, I am clothed in his righteousness so that I could be with God. You can never earn that on your own. But to be clothed in Jesus' perfection, though you yourself are not perfect, and for God the Father to see you because you put your faith in Jesus, if you've done that, and to say, you are forgiven, you have the righteousness of my Son, enter into my glory. That's the greatest thing ever. And what Paul says, being a Pharisee or being clothed in Christ's righteousness, this is not, this is not a loss for me. This is not a trade-off where I get the short end of the stick. Any fashion model, when they walk the catwalk, they've got several things on their mind, but they're chosen by the designer so as they walk down that catwalk, people see the model, but they're not consumed with the model, but the design that they are wearing. When you and I are clothed in Christ's righteousness, we've got a kingdom swag, family. You've got to know that. And you walk the catwalk of life and people see your kingdom swag. They see what's on your life. They're not looking to you, but to the designer. The one who clothed you. The one who made your spiritual outfit. And when they are digging their heels in life, trying to figure things out, and they're finding no satisfaction, and they look at your life and say, you're satisfied, you tell them, I am clothed with Christ's righteousness. I'm forgiven by God. I got a kingdom swag. And that's why Paul says, giving up all and receiving Jesus is far better than having all without him. Because nothing but Jesus can make us right with God. I'm almost out of time here, but I'm going to wrap this up in verse 10, 11. Paul then has this response, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible 
I may attain the resurrection from the dead. There are three things, three responses, three fruit that come of being clothed in Christ's righteousness. One of them is just what happens in that moment. Another one is a life that we live out. First of all, he says that I may know Christ. Yeah, we know him and we put our faith in him, but there is an ongoing life that we grow in knowing Jesus. And Paul says, because of what Jesus has done for me, I want to know him better. I want to live for him in everything. Family, Jesus did not leave his throne in heaven, be born in a manger, be ridiculed by the people he made, and die on a cross so that we can know him from a textbook. He did this so we can know him personally, intimately, experientially. He said, I want to know him. I want to know the power of his resurrection. Paul's like, I got a new life. I know that power. I've experienced it, but I want to know it daily. I want to know the power of God in my life, working through his Holy Spirit, changing me, using me. I want to know God. I want to know the power of his resurrection. And I want to share his sufferings. For Paul, his sufferings were always redemptive. God never wasted suffering of his saints if we choose to allow him to use it. And for Paul's case, every time he suffered, it used to advance the good news of Jesus. So Paul says, in response to all Jesus has done, I want to know him better. I want to know his power. I, I'm willing to suffer. I want to know that more. He says in verse 11, so that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul's not doubting whether or not he'll be raised to new life one day. In fact, he said in verse, in chapter 1, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He's confident he's going to heaven. What he's not sure about is how he's going to get there. He's in prison, remember? He's got a death sentence on his head. He's like, I may get released and die somewhere else, or I might die here. I don't know, but by any means possible, I know I'm going to be with Jesus someday. But in the meantime, I want to know him more. I want to walk in his power, and I'm willing to suffer for his sake. See, family, when, when we understand our value systems in their proper light, we realize that Jesus is the greatest treasure, gift, and choice we can ever have because in him, we become right before God. We stand right before God. We're clothed with kingdom swag, and we can live out this life forgiven. Forgiven. Well, family, I want us to, to be consumed with those truths, to have the same heartbeat that Paul had. If living for Jesus has become a drudgery for you, if temptation just feels so much stronger than obedience, if you're more inclined to sit on the couch rather than engage God in his mission or invest in your own life and not for God's kingdom, where the scriptures are no longer a delight, but just a duty. If prayer is distant and you don't want to do it, I think what you and I need to do in those moments is look at Jesus again and realize that everything he's offered us cannot be attained by anything we could ever accomplish. And we know the pit that he pulls us from, it does something to our hearts. It ignites our soul in a fresh and special way so that we're going to live for him, to know him, experience his power, 
And dare I even say suffer for the sake of his kingdom. Let's do this for his name, family. Giving all and receiving Jesus because it's better than having all except for him. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this morning. That's why it's such a beautiful name. Jesus' name is beautiful because in him we're forgiven when we put our faith in Jesus and turn from our sin. We're clothed, God. We receive a righteousness that's not our own that we could never achieve. God, for every saint in this room, everyone who knows you, Lord, stir in our hearts a fresh passion and love for Jesus to live for him, to know him deeper. And Lord, for for any who are here today who are far from Jesus, who are running in the wrong lane, who are finding themselves never satisfied because they're not looking to him, God, even during his last song, I pray that you would move in their hearts to come up for prayer. Put their faith in Jesus for the first time. Let heaven rejoice in that today, we pray. Family, Father, there there are others in our family who are um, just in need of getting right with you, Lord. Living for the wrong things. Not treasuring the cross. Not rejoicing in the Lord. God, I pray that you just stir their hearts, God. Bring conviction. Bring restoration. Bring healing. Break chains. Free slaves, God. Would you restore hope in this room, God, even as we sing this closing song. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's rise up to our feet and sing, God, you guys. And prayer team, would you make yourself available here in the front and in the back? I also want to say, family, we we have the stage here open. Maybe you're not feeling like you want to talk to somebody other than God today, right now. Maybe you say, I I just need to be with the Lord. But maybe you feel like you've got to to have a a, a step of faith you've got to take. And maybe it's simply a step of coming forward during the song and kneeling down at the altar here. There's nothing magical here about these steps. But sometimes I know in my own heart, I've got to make a a tangible step forward in a particular direction in order to seal something in my heart. Maybe that's where you're at today. You you feel God tugging in you, convicting you, challenging you, maybe giving you fresh joy and excitement, and you say, God, don't let it go away. And maybe your response is to come forward and pray with one of our brothers or sisters, or maybe just come forward and kneel down here and say, God, do your heart work. Help me see the cross of Jesus. Help Help me understand the beauty of who you are, the power of your resurrection, the fellowship of your suffering. So as we sing this song, let's respond in some way, whether in song and prayer and stepping forward, but let's respond and not be passive. Let's sing it all to God for his glory.